Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, August 18th, 2023. Alright, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the Ukraine caucus co-chair says that the war is not winnable. So this is Representative Andy Harris. He is a Republican from Maryland and a co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus. He said this week that he's not sure if the Ukraine war is winnable and called for the U.S. to pressure Zelensky to pursue peace talks. So Harris is also a member of the Freedom Caucus, which is interesting because the Freedom Caucus, it's about 50 House Republicans, and a lot of them, many of them, have been opposed to funding the Ukraine war this whole time and, you know, voted against the initial aid packages, but not Harris, because again, he's a member of the Ukraine caucus, very pro-Ukraine. He's been a staunch supporter of this proxy war against Russia. So to see him say things like this is very interesting. Um, So this was at a town hall on Tuesday night. It was reported by Politico, and he said that it seems like it's more of a stalemate and that the U.S. should be realistic about the situation. When discussing the counteroffensive, he said, quote, I'll be blunt, it's failed, end quote. And he said he's not sure if the war is winnable anymore. His comments are a sign that the new $24 billion uh, Ukraine aid package that the White House has requested, you know, won't receive as much support as previous packages have. I think it's going to be more difficult for it to pass. Um, unfortunately, I'm kind of pessimistic about this. I don't think the opposition is going to be enough. To stop it because, you know, every Democrat has, I haven't seen any dissent from Democrats and there's still enough Republicans that support it. The problem, I think McCarthy, the House Speaker, is going to have some issues because of the way I understand it, that the Rules Committee and some of these Republicans that are against uh, continuing this proxy war, they have some, they can do some legislative, you know, maneuvers to make things difficult. Um, So I think it might be delayed and it might be a headache for McCarthy, but I think ultimately they'll probably pass it. But again, this is just interesting for someone like this to be saying. So he was asked if he would support another tranche of spending on the war. Harris said, quote, if there is humanitarian monies, non-military monies or military monies without an inspector general, I'm not supporting it, end quote. So President Biden's request includes economic and humanitarian aid, and that's non-military monies that he's talking about there. And it doesn't include any sort of additional oversight for the military aid. So it sounds like he's going to oppose it. And he's also a member of the House Appropriations Committee, so he has some influence on spending. Um, And then this quote here from him about negotiations I thought was very interesting. He said, quote, I think the time has come to realistically call for peace talks. I know President Zelensky does not want it, but President Zelensky, without our help, he would abjectly lose the war. And with our help, he's not winning. It's a stalemate now, end quote. Um, So, again, it shows that, you know, the tide does seem to be turning here. And, you know, there's it doesn't seem like, again... I think this next aid package is going to get passed, but if they can keep doing this down the line, I I don't think they're going to be able to. I think 
you know, by then, you know, a few months from now, a year from now, there's going to be enough opposition, hopefully. Um, all right, so the next one here, Ukrainian leadership divided on the stalling counteroffensive. So Newsweek reported on Wednesday that Ukrainian leadership is divided on what steps to take amid Ukraine's stalling counteroffensive against Russian forces. Citing sources familiar with the discussions, the report said that officials within the presidential office they want to consolidate Ukraine's small gains and prepare for a Russian offensive that's expected in the fall or winter. And officials within the military high command, including Ukrainian commander-in-chief Valery Zelushny, want to keep pressing forward. So this is a quote from a source close to the Ukrainian government who, who said, quote, on the military side, you have Zelushny and others, but obviously he's in command who want to keep pushing. There are some questions on the political side about whether that makes the most sense right now, or does it make sense to consolidate where possible in some areas and relieve pressure on supply lines and stockpiles, end quote. So the source also said that some Ukrainian officials felt that the military misled them about their chance of success. They're unhappy because they apparently the military was telling them that they could do better than they have. Um, so, and this report comes as U.S. and other Western officials are being more candid about the situation on the battlefield, with some calling the counteroffensive a failure, like we just went over, and others just, you know, there's just been so many media stories quoting U.S. Western officials saying that this counteroffensive is unlikely to succeed. And, you know, as we were following it closely leading up to the counteroffensive, there was all sorts of indications you know, showing us that the U.S. and NATO did not believe that Ukraine could regain significant territory in this counteroffensive, but the U.S. pushed for it anyway. They just want to keep fueling this war. Um, and what was notable about this Newsweek report is that it did not mention if anyone at high levels of the Ukrainian government is thinking about negotiations with Russia to end the war. That wasn't mentioned in the report. And I think this is a sign that, you know, wasn't there's not some faction saying maybe we should, you know, think about ending this thing. So this shows that as long as, you know, the U.S. and NATO are providing all the support, this thing's just going to go on. And now they're saying that they expect a Russian offensive to come. So, you know, it's uh, they're just going to be digging in. Either way, they're they're planning to continue fighting. And, you know, this thing, realistically, if the U.S. and NATO keep supporting it, it could it's going to last years and years. Um, so it's just not a good sign. Um, all right. So the next one here, NATO says that only Ukraine can decide when to enter talks to end the war. So NATO secretary general Jens Stoltenberg on Thursday said that only Ukraine can decide when to enter peace talks to end the war with Russia and vowed the alliance's support for an open-ended conflict. He said, quote, it is the Ukrainians and only only the Ukrainians who can decide when there are conditions in place for negotiations and who can decide at the negotiating table what is an acceptable solution, end quote. So his comments came after his chief, chief of staff, Stian Jensen, drew a backlash for suggesting that Ukraine could cede territory to Russia in exchange for NATO membership an idea that both Ukrainian and Russian officials scoffed at. Neither side liked that idea because Ukraine doesn't want to give anything up, and Russia certainly doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. That's kind of the whole 
reason they invaded. Um, so, and Jensen appeared to walk back his comments the other day. He said that he made a mistake. So Stoltenberg said that the only path to a settlement is, quote, to support Ukraine militarily. If you want a lasting just peace, then military support for Ukraine is the way to get there. There is no doubt about that, end quote. So saying that they're going to support them till the end, till they win. And he's made similar comments like this isn't anything new from Stoltenberg. He's kind of just reaffirming this after his, you know, these comments from Jensen caused, you know, this, uh, you know, everybody got mad at him. (laughs) But, and, you know, Stoltenberg has previously said the quickest way to peace is by sending more weapons to Ukraine, which I think is just complete nonsense. Because, again, going back to that previous story, the Ukrainian officials, the Ukrainian leadership, they have no intention of ending this thing as long as they keep getting this support from the U.S. and NATO. And I think the only thing that's ultimately going to end this war is them losing it. And, you know, I think that's going to eventually happen, hopefully, uh, in Washington. Um, All right, so the next one here, the U.S. OKs sending F-16s from Denmark and the Netherlands to Ukraine. So the U.S. has approved the shipment of Lockheed Martin-made F-16 fighter jets from the Netherlands and Denmark to Ukraine as soon as the first batch of Ukrainian pilots completes training, which won't happen until next year. So a U.S. official told Reuters on Thursday that Secretary of State Antony Blinken provided the approval in a letter to Danish and Dutch officials. The letter reads, quote, I am writing to express the United States' full support for both the transfer of F-16 fighter aircraft to Ukraine and for the training of Ukrainian pilots by qualified F-16 instructors, end quote. Blinken added that the approval would allow Ukraine to take full advantage of its new capabilities as soon as the first set of pilots complete their training. So as I went over yesterday, there was a report in the Washington Post that said Uh, The first batch of Ukrainian pilots, which is only going to be six pilots, is not going to be done with their training until next summer. So it's going to take a while. And again, only six pilots. So what by then they'll be able to send six F-16s. And then the next batch is going to be a similar amount of pilots, and they're going to be completed six months after that batch. Um, So they're just not getting these planes anytime soon. Uh, You know, we're talking year, you know, possibly a year from now. Um, so, and the U- Ukrainians are saying, you know, they've given up on the idea of getting F-16s this year. All right. Uh, I just want to mention again that it is our fundraiser at antiwar.com. So you could go to antiwar.com slash donate to see all the different ways that you can support us. Uh, make a payment with a credit card, PayPal, or crypto. Special donations and monthly donations are your options. So if you like this show, if you listen to this show every day, uh, the only way that this can happen is because of antiwar.com. I'm lucky enough uh, to be able to work for them. Um, and just because of the nature of what we do, we have to rely on our readers to keep us going, to keep us independent, to keep giving you this non-interventionist, you know, anti-war point of view that you don't get in many places and to give you the amount of content that we do. You know, we churn it out. Uh, we work really hard. It's a small staff, um, so your money goes directly to, you know, funding the site, keeping the the lights on, paying the staff. Um, so it's very, uh, you know, we use your money very effectively. So again, antiwar.com/donate. Hopefully, we could bang this fundraiser out quick. 
because then we could keep focusing on giving you, uh, you know, the, the coverage and the content that uh, you expect from us. So antiwar.com slash donate. All right, the next one here. The U.S. looks to keep its military presence in Niger, which is not a surprise. So the Biden administration is considering ways to maintain its military presence in Niger following the July 26th coup that ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. Niger serves as a platform for U.S. operations in the Sahel region as it hosts about 1,100 troops and a major drone base that cost over $100 million to build, known as Air Base 201. So the U.S. has not formally declared the situation in Niger a coup since that would require cutting off aid and other types of support to the Nigerian military. CNN reported Thursday that one option being considered to maintain the U.S. military presence in the country is issuing a waiver to allow U.S. operations to continue in Niger if a coup determination is made. So they're considering, you know, I I don't know. They could just issue a waiver for anything, I guess. And then the New York Times also reported something similar. They said another option for the administration would, would be to stop short of declaring a coup and working out an arrangement with the junta to continue counterterrorism support. So they're thinking about just, you know, cooperating with the post-coup government. Um, because, you know, all the talk about caring about democracy, that's that's out of the window if, you know, we're talking about having to give up a big drone base and a big uh, military presence in West Africa. So many of the Niger junta leaders have received training from the United States and have a long history of cooperating with the U.S. military, including Brigadier General Musa Barmu, who has proclaimed himself Niger's new defense chief. Barmu worked closely with U.S. Special Operations Forces over the years, and according to CNN sources, he's kept in touch with several current and former U.S. officials, so he's a friend of the United States. And so far, the junta has not asked the U.S. to leave the country. And it's expected that the U.S. could cooperate with the coup leaders if if it chooses to. Um, you know, we've seen them. They cut. They severed some military deals that they had with France. Um, and it is certainly appears to be, you know, an anti-Western. Um, you know, they feel that they're being exploited by France and other countries that, purchase, you know, uh, rely on them for natural resources like uranium. There's a lot of uranium in Niger. But so far, they haven't tried to kick the U.S. out. Um, so I, on the other hand, though, as I've been covering, the U.S. has been demanding the reinstatement of Bazoom and has backed threats from the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, backed their threats to use force if the junta does not, relinqu- does not relinquish power. So kind of sending mixed signals here. Um, I think the message here is either way that the U.S. is not giving up, you know, no matter what happens, they're not going to leave uh, willingly. So I think that might show if the junta does decide to kick them out, you know, I don't think uh, the U.S. might take some extreme measures. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that. Uh, so this guy, Barmu, he met with acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Newland when she visited Niger last week. And according to the Associated Press, the junta warned Newland that they would kill Bazoom if neighboring countries intervened. 
Um, so the Niger coup follows a pattern of U.S. trained forces in Africa overthrowing civilian governments. This is something that Nick Terse, who writes at The Intercept, has reported on very extensively, this phenomenon of U.S. trained military officers carrying out coups. I'll get more into that in another story. And he's also just gone over the complete failure of U.S. counterterrorism operations in Africa since the U.S. started giving Niger counterterrorism support in 2002, uh, terrorist attacks in Africa have gone up 30,000%. And this is according to the numbers put out by the U.S. government. And uh, Terse is the one that reports on them. All right, so the next one here. ECOWAS says that most West African states are ready to join the Niger Intervention Force. So ECOWAS said Thursday that most West African nations are prepared to join a standby force that might intervene in Niger to reinstate President Mohamed Bazoum, who was deposed in a July 26 coup. So according to Al Jazeera, ECOWAS Commander Abel Fatou Moussa Sorry, ECOWAS Commissioner. I said Commander. Uh, but he said all ECOWAS members except Cape Verde and those under military rule, which includes Burkina Faso, Mali, Guinea, and Niger, are ready to participate. So that leaves 10 ECOWAS nations that are preparing to invade Niger. And the comments came as ECOWAS military chiefs began two days of talks in Ghana to discuss a potential military information intervention. Musa said at the meeting that military force was still a last resort, but stressed that the West African bloc was ready to take that step. He said, quote, if push comes to shove, we are going into Niger with our own contingents and equipment and our resources to make sure we restore constitutional order. If other democratic partners want to support us, they are welcome, end quote. So while ECOWAS, you know, they're still saying that they're open to a peaceful solution, that they want to resolve it diplomatically. You know, the junta is not showing any sign that it's willing to give in to its demand, which is reinstate Bazoom. They said over the weekend that they're going to prosecute him for treason. So they're not backing down. Um, So when ECOWAS intervention could spark a major regional war, Burkina Faso and Mali said that they would consider it a declaration of war against them. You have the U.S. and French troops in Niger. And from how I understand it, it seems like people in Niger are ready to to fight uh, off this ECOWAS intervention. So, you know, it, it's not going to be an easy go of it for these West African uh, nations if they want to invade. Um All right, so the next one here is from The Intercept. Niger Junta appoints U.S.-trained military officers to key jobs. So this is another one from Nick Terse, and he's basically just (laughs) going over more about the U.S. training. And so U.S.-trained military officers have been appointed to head five of eight regions of Niger by a junta that includes at least five U.S.-trained military officers. So uh, and then he gets into stuff about uh, how there's a Pentagon, a former Pentagon analyst did a study that found the U.S. trained officers, military officers in Africa are more likely to um, overthrow democratically elected governments. Again, just showing the failure of U.S. policy. All right, the next one here, the U.S. okays a massive Israeli arms sale to Germany. 
So this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. The White House has signed off on Israel selling its advanced air defense system to Germany. The Arrow 3 is a joint U.S.-Israeli weapon system that Berlin will purchase for $3.5 billion from Tel Aviv. So the Israeli Defense Ministry announced the sale on Thursday, saying that the agency has received Washington's approval. So this is a huge arms sale for uh, Israel. This is the lar- their largest ever. And the Arrow 3 air defense system was developed jointly by Israel Aerospace Industries and Boeing. The missile system is designed to work at higher altitudes outside of the atmosphere than other American air defense systems such as the Patriot or Aegis. And I know um, that some of the U.S. aid that they provide Israel, $3.3 billion of it is foreign military financing, financing, which is money that they give to foreign governments to buy U.S. weapons. And then $500 million that they get every year is for missile defense systems like the Iron Dome and like this Arrow 3. So some U.S. aid could have gone into developing this, and now they're making a killing uh, selling it. Um, All right, the next one here, Berlin walks back commitment to meet NATO spending targets. So this is another one from the Libertarian Institute from Connor Freeman. Berlin has backed off its plan to legally commit itself to meeting NATO's 2% yearly military spending target. So the German finance minister's new budget uh, was passed by the parliament after a clause pledging to meet the target was deleted at the last minute. Instead, in keeping with Berlin's national security strategy, it will maintain its policy to aim for 2% spending of GDP on an average over a five-year period. So this is a thing that NATO has been pushing its members to spend 2% of its GDP on its military, and a lot of them aren't doing it. And it's interesting because Germany is, you know, one of the biggest NATO countries, the biggest economy in Europe. And uh, this is a big gripe that, you know, Trump had with Germany and kind of something conservatives complain a lot about is that we have over 30,000 troops there. We're, we're responsible for their defense. You know, they should spend more on their military. Um, you know, I personally don't care how much Germany spends on its military. I think we should just get out of there anyway. But, you know, I understand that grievance. Um, you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, so it's just interesting that, uh, you know, they, they don't want to get up to that level. And I know, I forget the number, but a lot of NATO countries are not meeting that goal. Um and Stoltenberg's always uh, going on about it. Uh, all right, so the last one here, Pakistan confirms a cable on the U.S. pressure to remove Imran Khan. So this is another one from The Intercept from uh, about this cable that they reported on that showed how the U.S. pressured Pakistan to have a no-confidence vote to remove Imran Khan last year after he went to Russia because of what they called his aggressive neutrality uh, related to the Ukraine war, which is just such an absurd way to frame it. And now it's been confirmed there's mixed reactions from the Pakistani government. Some people were questioning the authenticity of it, um, but ultimately it was um, it was uh, confirmed by Pakistan's Prime Minister, Shabazz Sharif. And the State Department has also confirmed it basically uh that because the cable was an account from the pakistani government about a meeting with the u.s state department official and the state department you know essentially said that it was right 
But they, they're claiming that nothing in the comments from the State Department officials showed that the U.S. took a position on who the leader of Pakistan should be, which is complete nonsense. Because if you read it, it's clear that the U.S. is saying, we don't want Khan. If you get rid of Khan, things will be better between us. <laughs> you know, it's very clear. They didn't say who they wanted to replace him, but they said, basically said, get rid of him. Um, very brazen. You know, the, the stories like this, sometimes you forget, you think that, the U.S. isn't so blatant anymore with things like that, with the way it supports coups or or pressures other countries. But then you see stories like that, and yeah, they're still they're still doing it. Uh, but that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Kelly Vlahos. Bill Crystal leads charge to make Republicans think right on Ukraine. Uh, one that's over at Responsible Statecraft about Bill Crystal's uh, campaign to you know have ads telling people to support Ukraine. One from Doug Bandow, how will America's borrow and spend politicians pay for imperial foreign policy? Uh, We have one from Ramsey Baroud, Palestinians welcome China's new Middle East role, but it is not meditation, mediation that they need. (laughs) Sorry. One from Ibrahim El-Marashi, Blackwater paved the way for Wagner. And our spotlight is from Ted Snyder. Sorry, I'm all messed up here. Um, our spotlights from Ted Snyder, why peace talks, but no peace. And that is at the American conservative. And that is it. That's everything for me for today. That's everything for the week. Again, please help us with our fundraiser. Uh, if you can't contribute other ways you can help us out is just by sharing the show, telling your friends, sharing it on social media, commenting, liking, subscribing, all that stuff really helps out. And I appreciate it. I hope everybody has a good weekend. I'll talk to you in a couple days. Thanks for listening.